Hello again, and welcome to Planet Beyond Podcast, brought to you by Fugro, the leading partner in uncovering geodata from the greatest subsea depths right to outer space. Yep, and hosted by me, John Baston Pitt. This month, we're going to talk about the largest state in the US, Alaska. But how much do we actually know about America's only Arctic state? We picture a vast, untouched wilderness of mountains, of glaciers and forests. We may know that it is incredibly rich in natural resources. But today, we're going to learn about a state that is facing a major challenge as the effects of global warming both threaten its environment and change the economics of hydrocarbon investments. It needs to take bold action to adapt to a changing world. To learn about this transition and those bold actions, I'd like to introduce to you two guests. First, the former governor of Alaska, Bill Walker, who held office from 2014 to 2018. And secondly, Gwen Holdman, Director of the Alaska Center for Energy and Power at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. Governor, perhaps you could tell us a bit about yourself. Born in Fairbanks, uh, raised in Alaska, I've lived here all my life. And my background is uh, construction. I'm a carpenter. I went off to law school and Ultimately became an attorney, but I'm still a carpenter and uh, an attorney, I guess, and became governor. I was the governor from 2014, 2018, and it was an incredible honor. And I've worked in the oil, building of the oil pipeline, uh, a lot of time on the North Slope. I'm from Valdez, where the oil tankers uh, leave Valdez. We have had as much as 700 tankers per year at the, at the peak. And so pretty familiar with the, with the uh, resource development issues in Alaska. So, so as listeners, what do we really need to understand about Alaska before we talk further about the challenges facing the state? Obviously spread across, we are you know, one-fifth the size of, of the continental U.S. Uh, we stretch from the Great Lakes to uh, Florida and over to San Diego. If you, if you lay us across a map, that's kind of that's how far we spread. So, so we are a very significantly large state. Uh, we have more coastline, I believe, than all the rest of the continental U.S. combined. Uh, so we have a tremendous amount of coastline. We, we have a very robust uh, commercial fishing uh, in Alaska, uh, extremely robust uh, tourism in Alaska just because of our sheer beauty uh, and, and, and you know, the uniqueness of Alaska. We are the only state that is tax-free. Uh, we have no income taxes. We have no statewide sales taxes. Uh, so it's um, when we look at transition from an economic standpoint, we've got some, some, uh, you know, some, some challenges there to address in the future. How did Alaska come to be known as the resource state? When we became a state, we were told that we would not be given all the kind of infrastructure we see in what we call the lower 48, the continental U.S., if you will. And uh, they've held to that promise. We have not had, uh, gotten all the infrastructure they have in the lower 48. So in, in exchange for that, they said the resources will be owned by the state of Alaska. Uh, it's very unusual. Usually it's owned by the property owner. Uh, in this situation, it's not. It's owned by the state. We have uh, subsurface rights. 
and we are to live off of those. Um, the, the theory was we would live off of the revenue uh, generated from those resources, and, and we have uh, to a large extent. Uh, the oil on the North Slope uh, for a period, long period of time, about uh, 30 years, generated about uh, 80 to 90 percent of our, our revenue to, for government services, for education, public safety, um, highways, marine highways, etc. So that was the theory, and then uh, we've had some challenges getting access to some of the areas uh, over the years, and that, that continues. But that was the theory, and, and that has been the theory. And that worked, and our throughput of oil is about 25% of what it used to be. It was about 2 million barrels a day in the, in the late 80s, and now it's about 500,000 barrels a day. And so um, when there's a drop in price of oil, this has a significant impact on our finances. But Alaska has been smart with its income, hasn't it? And built up quite a large sovereign wealth fund. $83 billion, roughly, in a given day. Um, similar to what they've done in Norway, but on a much smaller scale. And so now our funding comes from that fund, about three quarters of our funding for education, university, government services, if you will, uh, comes from that fund. We have shifted over on a percentage of market value. So we've gone from 90% dependent on oil revenues to about 30% dependent on oil revenues as a result of starting to draw on a structured draw from the permanent fund. You mentioned that a drop in the oil revenue can have a significant impact on the state's finances. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? How big an impact does it have? Well, I, yes, and that's a, that's a real problem. I have a, a very real experience with that. I mean, I always say that every governor gets to spin the oil wheel. And we had one governor, uh, when she was in office, Governor Palin, she, oil was $147 a barrel. And I was in uh, Governor Walker, uh, oil was at $26 a barrel. Significant difference. And the, the challenge is, you know, when oil prices go down, you know, the, the companies will lay over a drill rig and not, not drill. But we can't lay over a school. We can't lay over a hospital. We can't, we can't stop education because of that. So, so the, the, the challenge we've had is we have just bet on all in on one commodity and we live or die based upon that commodity's price and the, and the world politics associated with that, what's going on in the Middle East, et cetera. So, so it's, been, it's, a, it's been a real roller coaster. Uh, to do that, and certainly was was for me, and um, so yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a challenge. Now we see oil back up in the ninety dollar a barrel, and and oh happy day, but you know what goes up comes down, and and so it's a it's a it's a it's 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 a difficult way to. That's why we made the shift we did to the to a sustainable draw off the permanent fund because that's stable, uh, much more stable. Of course, markets go up and down, and but yeah, it's a it's tough when you're trying to run an economy based upon the price of oil. Tough to run. Even for a state that, if it were a nation, would be the eighth most resource-rich country in the world. Incredible. But the, the challenges facing Alaska are not just about uncertainty in the state's budget, are they? During my time and as governor, I certainly traveled to many villages that need to be relocated, and some of them are in the process of being relocated because of the sea ice historically has protected our villages in the winter up in the Arctic uh, from the winter storms. And now the sea ice is, uh, is, is, is not there in many places. And so therefore the, the uh, shores are vulnerable and are being uh, eaten away by the, uh, by the winter storms. So, 
So uh, very expensive to, to move a community. And uh, I, I know uh, where I come from in Valdez after the 64 earthquake, we had to move our whole town five miles. So I have some personal experience with that. So when, when I was in office, we actually um, stood up a climate action, uh, climate change action committee, uh, which was made up of 25, about 25 folks. One was a uh, president of one of the oil companies, BP Alaska, and another one was a whaling captain from off of uh, Point Hope. So we had an, everybody in between. Uh, so it was a tremendous uh, group, and they put out a put out a, a report, and the and it laid out a number a number of things that could be done. So. So it's, um, it's something we deal with, and we are a resource state, and um, we, we celebrate that. Um, that's how we became a state uh, in many respects, was because of our resources. So, um, but um, the, the, the world's changing, and we need to uh, uh, acknowledge that and be prepared for that. Alaska does have other options, though, doesn't it? And I'm, I'm glad that... Um, uh, Gwen Holden is on, on this call because she's very knowledgeable on, on the other energy opportunities we have in Alaska. We are, we are not just rich in resources in the ground, but also, you know, rivers with, with uh, you, know, uh, you know, kinetic energy with, with, uh, uh, with you know, in-river in uh, hydro. There's a fair amount of solar that goes on. Uh, people think of Alaska as a, as a, as a you know, we're dark all winter, and obviously we're not. Um, tremendous daylight in the summertime. Geothermal is is very significant in Alaska, so we have other other energy opportunities, and, and much of the minerals we have uh, in the ground are needed for uh, a lot of the um, uh, new energy, if you will, uh, and so so we I think we will be able to benefit from that as well. I think now might be the perfect time to bring Gwen in. Gwen, you're another lifelong Alaskan. Could you tell us a bit about your work and your experience living there? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, John. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on to this podcast. I've really been looking forward to this conversation um, with Governor Walker as well. So my background, I have a background in physics and mechanical engineering, more of a private sector um, development sort of background as well. Um, I uh, have been involved in several projects in the state of Alaska. For example, um, the only geothermal power plant um, that was developed in Alaska to date. Uh, I was the lead engineer on that. I joined the university a little bit over a decade ago because I really um, think that there are some very interesting challenges and opportunities in Alaska in the energy space and having a strong research program at the university that can help Alaskans um, address the challenges and sort of take advantage of some of the opportunity space we have within sort of that global sort of energy transition that we're all sort of um, experiencing is something that I'm pretty interested and passionate about. I think like from a personal from a personal narrative, um, I have lived off the electric grid for um, 20 years. I actually am on grid now. I, I've moved to a place where I have access to grid power, but um, a lot of folks think that I lived off grid because I chose to, or I wanted to self-generate power. And um, this kind of goes back to that conversation about how big Alaska is. And though, even though I live very close to Fairbanks, which is to give you some idea, the second biggest town in Alaska with a population in the, in the town of Fairbanks of 35,000. That's the second biggest city in Alaska. 
Um, <laughs> and I lived on the outskirts of Fairbanks, so not very far out of town, but the electric grid did not extend to where I lived. And so I had to self-generate my own power for, for, a, for a long time, you know, um, with solar, wind, um, diesel generator. I um, cut wood to, to, for heating. So in some ways, like a bit of like a, a primitive lifestyle. Um, but even though I'm kind of connected to one of the biggest cities um, in, in Alaska, and that kind of shows you like from that infrastructure standpoint, Alaska has a really limited set of, um, of infrastructure and our population is pretty spread out. Spatially, as the governor mentioned, you know, we actually cross four time zones. Alaska crosses four times. We use one. We use one for simplicity. But geographically, we span four time zones. So if you think about that, that's like the entire continental U.S., for example, right? And yet our population is about 700,000 people, half of which live in Anchorage, which is our you know, main city, the main metropo metropolitan area um, in Alaska. And so we're pretty spread out. And a lot of folks don't have access to the kinds of infrastructure that we take for granted in many parts of the developed world. It sounds like Alaska is unique in two ways. How blessed you are with natural resources and this decentralized population. Now, this must have a major influence on how Alaska transitions and indeed how it approaches many challenges. That's right. And I think that's actually what I think is very interesting and intriguing about Alaska. There's two sides to this. You know, we talked about us being a really resource rich state. I would like to see how we can kind of leverage those resources in terms of meeting export demand potentially for, you know, low carbon um, or, you know, hydrogen carrier fuels or things like this. I think that we have this opportunity to kind of transition from blue hydrogen or blue hydrogen carrier fuels to green because Alaska has so many renewables as well as fossil based um, energy resources. But because our infrastructure is so limited, what's so fascinating in my mind about Alaska and somewhat unique is I mentioned about how I had to self-generate power at my own home because the electric grid did not extend there. And that's something that really isn't the experience for most people in the UK. That's true for many of our communities in Alaska as well. We have 200 or so communities that are not grid connected either to one another or to a larger central grid infrastructure. And so all the power is generated locally. The fuel that's being used to power diesel generators in these remote places is often imported from outside of Alaska and outside of the U.S. in many places just due to kind of supply line issues. And, um, and so there's a real drive to transitioning to renewables and incorporating very high proportions of renewables on what we call these small isolated microgrid systems, right, that can operate autonomously to serve a local population. And that's something that is being talked about in terms of both the resilience mechanism and a method for more distributed generation for bringing in more renewables like to support local communities. And so that's something that we've been doing and pioneering here in Alaska for a very long time. And so we have several communities in Alaska that can operate off of 100% wind energy or 100% solar when the resource is available, to be clear. But we're doing that in ways that's economic and not necessarily driven by policy, which I also find to be pretty fascinating about Alaska. Wow. Alaska seems to be taking a more vigorous approach to transition than might be expected considering its resource wealth. It sounds like a dynamic change is underway. You know, one of the things that um, Alaska has really benefited from historically is the fact that we've had these abundant and onshore access to uh, world-class oil and gas resources. 
the North Slope, um, the Trans-Alaska Pipeline. We've exported a lot of raw crude in the past historically, and that, that resource is declining. We have other resources available that are maybe untapped or that we have the opportunity for things like heavier oils that are a little bit more difficult to extract. And we also still have a wealth of natural gas resources that really have not been tapped on the North Slope. Same thing for Cook Inlet, and but yet we are also recognizing that we have these unique opportunities to kind of fit into some global markets. Alaska is really well situated in terms of being on the Pacific Rim in terms of shipping routes from like the west coast of North America to Asia. And there's a great demand in Asia for cleaner fuels, for access to you know ways that they can meet their own carbon reduction goals. And we believe that Alaska can actually be part of this like transition internationally in ways that maybe the rest of the United States um, can more address the, the domestic opportunity space there. Let me, let me add to that a bit. You know, one of the challenges we have, we, we are the most energy-rich state in the nation, and we have the highest cost energy in the nation. And so it's a matter of connecting with the resources we have available. The, the natural gas that Gwen referred to on the North Slope it's, it's conventional gas. It comes out with the oil, it's separated, and it's put back in the ground. And it's been doing that for, uh, for about 40 years. It's the largest uh, pool of conventional stranded gas, probably certainly in North America, if not, not the world. And it's one that is uh, it's one of the largest uh, potential carbon sequestration projects because it would be separated at the North Slope and re-injected re back into the ground uh, at the North Slope. So the volume we use of gas uh, that we re-inject every day is equivalent to the total volume used in California, Washington State, and Oregon combined. Those states combined, that's how much gas we put back in the ground. We don't use that ourselves. Um, it's too far away, and the only economic way to do that is to have the LNG export piece of it. Alaska basically was one of the first locations in the U.S. It was the first location to export LNG in October of 1969. We had 100% of the, of the Japanese market on uh, the export out of Cook Inlet. So it's not like we haven't done it before. So for a number of reasons, it has not happened. It would be a tremendous boon to uh, reduce the, uh, the carbon uh, footprint in, uh, in, in Asia, no question about that. And that would allow us to uh, use it ourselves on its way by. It strikes me that Alaskans aren't just great at sensing opportunity, they are pioneers as well. You're, you're doing things for the first time, but because you have sensed change, you are acting early and independently. Now, would that be fair? Well, one thing unique about Alaska, and Gwen has, has, has exemplifies it where she lives, you have to figure things out. You know, you don't... You know, when you have a problem and you're stuck in your driveway, like actually I am as we speak uh, in my cabin, uh, you don't call triple A, you, you call a friend uh, or you get out your shovel or your snowblower or your cat or whatever you do. Uh, I don't I mean a cat as far as a, a, an animal cat, I mean a D8 cat, and, uh, and you pull yourself out. And so uh, a friend of mine refers to Alaskans, we are Imagineers because we have to be Imagineers to figure things out. And so when it comes to being creative on, on uh, energy, we have some of the brightest people, I think, in the world in Alaska uh, to figure that out because we've had to do that. And so that's what I love about Alaska. You can go to a very remote place and learn a lot 
from per people that live there because they may not have electricity, the normal kind of electricity that you would, you know, they generate their own. Uh, they generate their own. Obviously, they have their own uh, wells and septic systems and things like that. And, and so we're just, you know, we're just different that way and we celebrate that. What is the market like in Alaska? We've heard what the people are like and how creative they are, but how is the energy sector structured? How does it behave? Almost all of these communities, I mentioned there's about 200 individual communities that um, self-generate power locally. For the most part, a lot of them have their own utility that, that serves power just to that local population. And those utilities are for the most part unregulated, not economically regulated. And so really um, it creates this very interesting sort of market where um, even though they're not regulated, which means in some ways they can set their rates at whatever they might choose to. We also do have a small subsidy that we call the Power Cost Equalization Program, which causes utilities to report all of their costs for generation, what they're paying for fuel, every, their, their, um, the, the delivered cost of power uh, for residential and commercial users. And so this information is all very publicly available. So there's a high degree of transparency. Every community knows exactly what their utility doing is doing and what the utility up the river, their neighbor is doing in terms of providing power and the costs associated with that. And as, as Governor Walker mentioned, we have some of the highest energy costs in the world in these rural communities and that's really what's actually driving this transition in many places in rural Alaska to renewable energy development and I actually think that that's a, a pretty interesting thing so there's not like for example a state mandate there's not um, a state renewable portfolio standard although we are considering those kinds of tools um, in the future it's really very much done at the community level it's not driven by central government and so this goes back to this fact that Alaskans are really innovative creative and are willing to sort of take control of their destiny to some extent into their own hands. And part of that is being self-sufficient in terms of energy. And so this idea of like generating power from local resources, and then many of these communities are designing their systems so that they're overpowering with renewables such as wind, and then using that to actually heat individual residences, right? So the strategy isn't necessarily to install a battery and have like a really expensive system, but to say, hey, when we know the wind is blowing and holy cow, it really blows over large parts of the year, especially in the winter when we need heat, whenever we're overpowered on wind, we take that excess and we use that to heat individual residences. And we can do that at a lower cost than what heating oil would otherwise cost. And so we're really taking a look at energy holistically because it's not just these larger utilities that are providing sort of like a single service or commodity. We're really looking at energy very holistically across all the different ways people use energy. And it's a pretty different paradigm and a pretty different model. And so Alaska in that way has this really interesting niche market. We're at the kind of edge. We're at the edge of like sort of the, the, the developed world in many ways, and things are pretty simple, but yet we have some of the most sophisticated and interesting energy systems of anywhere, I think, in the world um, that have been developed in Alaska. We have 12% of the world's microgrids that have high proportions of renewable energy resources connected to them in Alaska. In such a small population center, we are leading the world.
does seem that while other nations are taking a top-down approach to their energy transitions, you are thinking in a completely different way. It seems to fit with this energy transition model better, although of course it's very early days. Um, and maybe different models will work better in different countries with different time frames. But there seems to be a lot to learn from Alaska's story here. It's a different paradigm for how we're going to transition to clean energy resources, right? So in Alaska, it's more around this sort of distributed energy um, resource paradigm where you've got these greater resilience built around individual systems and less dependency on transmission of power from one place to another. So you also have a lot of smaller projects. So, you know, sometimes those can be more expensive, but they're also really meeting local needs, right? So there's sort of these pros and cons, right? We're not necessarily investing in macro projects that are, you know, feeding power to users that are far away along transmission networks, you know. It's the, the, the energy sources that we've been developing, especially renewables, are closer to the users themselves. Um, so thinking about that a little bit differently, I think they're both valid strategies. Um, but one thing that we're interested in in Alaska is grid resilience, because you mentioned what are some of these challenges we have. Not only do we have a large landscape, but we have tremendous potential for natural disaster in Alaska, right? And so we need to really build resiliency into our systems in ways that people aren't necessarily thinking about in more urban markets. But I think that as we're seeing climate change, we need to be thinking about those more resilient energy solutions and how we can ensure that these critical nodes, our communities um, and infrastructure can continue to keep the lights on even in the face of uncertainty and um, you know things that we can't necessarily predict that might happen in the future. You know, John, let me just add to that. Uh, thanks, Gwen. To sort of put a, uh, the paint the picture of Alaska a bit, you know, we have, uh, the state owns 242 airports in Alaska. The next largest state is Oregon with 40 because we don't have very many roads up here. And as Gwen talks about, you know, individual systems, it, it's, it's, she's absolutely correct because some communities are hundreds of miles from the next. And the, the, you know, the uh, small, the, the communities and villages are, are small in population. So to, to tie us all together, uh, what, like you, you see in the continental U.S., is challenging just because of the, the, the sheer distance, uh, lack of, of road access, et cetera. Also, in the, uh, uh, what, what typically happens on the river communities, on the Yukon River and elsewhere, they'll get a fuel barge in the summer. And so it's almost like buying a commodity. It is buying a commodity. You pay whatever the price of fuel is or oil is for that particular full barge load, and it lasts a year. And so it's been challenging, especially now as we have, you know, higher oil prices this, this coming summer. If it continues, suddenly they're going to be paying, you know, a much higher cost for their uh, their, their feedstock, if you will, for their for their power generation. So anyway, those are some of the additional challenges that we have that are unique to uh, unique to Alaska. You have unique challenges in Alaska, but also unique opportunities. I suppose opportunity and threat often go hand in hand. But, but what are the next steps for your state? What needs to happen next to make a success of the coming years? I think what we're starting to see is really the state industry, the university, um, stakeholders sort of come together to really think about what that next step looks like. And, and, and you know, I think it's going to be at multiple scales. 
because we have such distributed infrastructure, some things just need to happen at the local level. And there's also places where you've got limited access to renewables. And so one of the things that we're looking at right now, for example, is where nuclear energy could play a role. And I know that this has been controversial in Europe as well, but like we're very interested in the idea that micro reactors might play a role in this. So again, this isn't like a single thing, but like what are these multiple steps we could take? And there's a project planned, um, probably the first commercial reactor in the US, a micro reactor, small reactor, five megawatts of electric power that's planned for Eielson or Air Force Base to be um, commissioned by 2027. So that's, you know, five years out from now. And so there's these, you know, we're very interested in understanding what that opportunity space looks like. In fact, right now, I'm working closely with the state legislature and our current governor on um, making sure that our statutes sort of accommodate those, um, those energy uh, opportunities that we didn't really think about 30 or 40 years ago when a lot of those state statutes were originally created. There's also a real, um, there's a real effort right now between native corporations, between the, the state and between the university and rest of the private sector to really think about leveraging these resources we have for these bigger wins. Like the idea of like, could Alaska be a West Coast hydrogen hub or a Pacific Rim hydrogen production hub? Could we really be looking at making like sort of hydrogen carrier fuels? We have an ammonia plant that's been mothballed here that was really designed for fertilizer export market. Like, could we be looking at where um, Alaska could kind of transition to sort of a hydrogen economy. I want to use that word carefully because I have, you know, a lot of questions related to hydrogen, but this idea of like really looking at these alternative or synthetic fuels, there's a lot of work that's been done over in Europe in this area. And so we actually, we actually partner quite a lot around the circumpolar Arctic. You know, that's one thing we've been talking a lot about Alaska, but these challenges, some of them are very similar all around the Arctic. Like when I talk about these remote grids and this lack of grid infrastructure, Around the Arctic, and this is primarily in Canada, Alaska, Russia, and Greenland, about 20% of the world's landmass is not grid connected in the Arctic, yet these are industrialized modern nations, right? And so that's a that's a very big area that's really that people don't think about that doesn't that isn't grid connected. The outlier there is the European Arctic, right? They're they're very well um, interconnected, uh, all the way to the very tippy top of you know Norway and Sweden and Finland and such. So yeah, that that idea that we may be part of like what's happening in Europe and that there may be opening of shipping routes, that there's a new connection opportunity there is something that we're pretty interested in exploring. And again, like how we can use our existing resources in a bigger way, not just for local energy use and production is something that we're very interested in exploring at the state level right now. And let me just add that, that uh, to what some of what Gwen said is that, you know, the nuclear, nuclear reactor uh, wasn't that many years ago. The smallest one was 25 megawatts. And that's just way too large for, for many of our, our smaller areas. So now that it's gotten down to, to five megawatts, that's, that's a significant change. And so I think Alaska is going to be sort of on the cutting edge of some on some of this as far as we just can't, you know, have the the grid distribution that you typically see in the lower 48, and so and the and the backup systems and whatnot. So, so we we do we do embrace these opportunities. And are there any other strategic challenges that stand in Alaska's way? Any anything you need to work on from an administrative or policy perspective? Well, you know, a challenge I had certainly as governor, and our current governor has the same challenge: is that gaining access to our 
to our resources is a big challenge. Over 60% of the land in Alaska is owned by the federal government. And so to get access to uh, resources uh, is, is, is a significant challenge. And we have different attitudes by different administrations. And so one administration is, is very much in favor, the next administration is not. So we have to sort of survive the, so the, the, the different swings of the pendulum, if you will, um, between different uh, administrations. Right now we're having a, a very challenging time getting access. And you know, one of the things we pride ourselves in is that the way we do things in Alaska, as far as from an environmental standpoint, we have some of the most stringent environmental requirements on exploration of any place in the world. We're pretty proud of the way we do things. There have been some mistakes, of course there have, and, 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 uh, but we learn from those and, and we move on. So, so the, our biggest challenge, I think, I mean, from my standpoint, is, is just getting access to, to the processes, I mean, to the, to the land itself and to, for the resource development. So that's really, from a, from a government standpoint, that's a, a, a huge uh, challenge to, uh, uh, to, to do that. I think the other thing I'd add to that is, you know, just policy stability at both the state and the national level. You know, I think that we're just in really interesting times. And, you know, that lack of sort of policy stability that we've had at the national and at the state level um, has made it challenging to kind of stay a consistent course, you know. And obviously, there's some there's some positive reasons why we like democracy is complicated and messy. Right. And it's sort of supposed to be that. So, but at the same time, we are in this like kind of key time and, and, and we need leadership to make um, good decisions and to really kind of um, steer us on a path that really um, charts, I think, kind of like a, a future um, that, that will provide opportunities, not just for us, but our kids. You know, like I, I have three young children and I have been indoctrinating them to love Alaska and to want to stay in Alaska. Um, we, um, we have a sled dog team. They raced in a race last weekend. We, you know, go and travel across the state and, you know, really um, enjoy and appreciate the, the the place that we live. But I want my kids to have opportunity here in the future. I want them to be able to have like a job that ties them to sort of, you know, what's happening globally and not just be part of an export a resource export economy, right? And so really thinking about transitioning away from this idea of Alaska as this export state to like, what is our long-term, you know, we're just a, a very young state, right? We became a state in 1959, right? And so how do we transition to a more sustainable economy? I think I've, I've heard statistics that the average tenure for people living in Alaska is seven years. You know, people come here for a while, they make some money and they leave. And they're not necessarily interested in the idea of investing and leaving something behind for future generations. And that's sort of, I think, the transition that I feel like we need to be making for people like Bill and I that are, you know, more like on that lifeline long Alaskan sort of track. And that for our, um, for those future generations that are come behind us, like how can we make sure that we have a place that both protects our our natural resources, but also is a, a wonderful place to live and work in the future. And what does that look like? And what investments are we making? And how are we making those decisions? It's sort of like, to me, that key challenge that we're facing right now. I'm hearing demographic challenges, convincing people to stay, not just for a career, but to put down roots. Although it sounds like the place has a lot going for it. I, you know, I just hope people recognize the, 
what Gwen has said. She has a dog team and she has a sailboat. <laughs> I mean, that's you don't you don't find you don't you you find another person that uh, lives she lives 365 miles away from the ocean, and and she has a sailboat. I assume you have it in Valdez, maybe Cordova. Cordova, yeah. Uh, and and you have and you have a uh, you have a dog team as well and and you know and she's she's right about the uh, so right about the lack of roots sometimes we have that we have a we have a I don't know sometimes people don't put their roots down and and that's unfortunate and you know I, my wife is from Hawaii and you know we have dinner with her her you know high school girlfriend whatever and and the neighbor will come over to have dinner and they're like a you know fifth generation, you know, in Hawaii and, and whatnot. And, and so we, we certainly have some, and in Fairbanks in particular, we have some families with deep, deep roots, but that's the, that's almost the exception uh, rather than, than, than the rule. And so uh, I think it's a concern about the future of our state that they don't see, they're concerned about, you know, when you're living off of a, a, a non-renewable resource, what's going to happen when that stops? There's, what's going to happen to the education system? What's going to happen to the university? So it creates some unknowns that uh, it's our job to, uh, to resolve those. In these podcasts, we always end with a standard question. I'm rather excited to hear what you guys have to say, because frankly, you've already inspired me. If there were no limitations, what would be the one thing that you would want to change to contribute to a safe and livable world? Let's start with you, Gwen. Gosh, I think that for me, because, you know, what you could say is really looking at something like global warming, you know, that seems to be the, the big the big thing that we're all concerned about. But, you know, the reality is, is that there's always going to be change. Like, you know, we're not going to, we don't live in, we cannot just put the, the, the world in some kind of like a, you know, under some kind of a greenhouse and just say, okay, we're going to keep everything exactly the same all the time, right? And so... Um, we have to understand that there will always be change globally, right? It's not a static system. And so I feel like humans, the reason we've thrived as a species is because we've been able to adapt, right? We've been able to adapt to different environments, to different circumstances really well. And I think that what I would like to see is for us to continue to really explore that resiliency space and really transitioning to resources that are sustainable over time. So like, how can we make sure that, you know, for me, I'm transitioning to renewables. Yes, climate change is absolutely the challenge that's facing our generation and the next generation, right? But if we can figure out ways to be um, sustainable in terms of the footprint that we have on this earth and really work towards that, that's really what we need to do. Every community can be thinking about that. Every state and every nation, I think, should be thinking about that. Yeah, I guess for me, and I won't be quite as worldly as Gwen, uh, she's got the world covered, so let me digress a bit below that. I mean, I, I don't mean to make this a political statement because uh, I know this is not about politics, but I'm, I'm an independent, I'm nonpartisan. I don't, I don't belong to a party, uh, I just belong to a state. And so I, I think that sometimes partisanship gets in the way of progress because uh, climate change has become a partisan issue. The pandemic became a partisan issue. And I just, I just wish we could just look at opportunities and, and solve problems as, as people rather than are you a 
part of this party or that party. And I don't, I don't have any issues with parties other than we tend to divide up that way. And, and these issues are much bigger than any particular political party. Uh, the, the, it requires all folks uh, to address this without um, having to sort of get, uh, feel that, that they're going beyond what their party rules or platform might be. So it's really, uh, and I've seen that obviously in the 64 earthquake, uh, we came together as a state, uh, was not partisan. The 67 flood in Fairbanks, we came together as a state, not as partisan. So I just, I just, uh, I've seen in my lifetime, I think a significant change of partisanship sort of you sort of sit back on an issue and wait to see where the you know where the parties are going to fall, and then you decide which side of that issue you're going to be on. And I think that's unfortunate. And I think climate change is a is a classic example of that. And so, so it's 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 it's, it's far too important. And as Gwen says, it's not something that's coming; it's upon us. And we certainly know that. And some have said, you know, Alaska in many respects is at ground zero, and we are on climate change. So, I think, I mean, our university system. Uh, is is one of our 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 gems in Alaska, and I think that uh, there's much more can be done on climate change in, in Alaska. You know, one of the centers for climate change in the U.S. is in, I believe it's in the University of Arizona. Uh, my goodness, um, is, we certainly should have that in in Alaska. We do have. I'm just going to mention a plug for the Cold Climate Housing Research Center in Fairbanks, which is my passion because I my construction. Uh, background and, and you know the cheapest energy is the one is energy we don't use and so they have done a tremendous job uh, in Fairbanks at the university is the technology of, of a new way to build uh, an envelope of a, of a structure to make it much 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 more energy efficient so there's much more to be done but just I just wish we could just be just regular folks again rather than you know, are you a this party or are you a that party, whatnot, so. One of the things that really struck me today is the idea of Alaska as this country of Imagineers. Gwen and Bill have described in detail all of the things that are being done, that can be done, and that will be done to allow Alaska to not only adapt, but to thrive in a changing world. This, this pioneering spirit might come from the, the self-sufficiency Alaskans live with, both on a state level and for many of them as individuals. But it certainly does not mean that Alaska thinks of, of itself in isolation. It sees itself in its cherished position, not just as Alaska, or even as one state of the United States, but as a global player. And Alaskans are raising their children to be proud of that. And perhaps there is a lesson for the rest of us here. If we, if we have the pride in ourselves and each other, then the right things will happen. So thank you both very much. Until next time, be safe, be remarkable, be the difference.